This episode is brought to you by Bellingholm School of Music, giving musicians of all ages the opportunity to learn, perform, and excel in their musical endeavors. Bellingholm School of Music offers music lessons, performance opportunities, and professional rehearsal spaces with integrated recording studio technology. They have an incredible roster of 23 talented and engaging teachers and state-of-the-art facilities to serve the Whatcom County region. Stop in or visit bellinghomeschoolofmusic.com today to schedule a free introductory lesson, inquire about rehearsal space rentals, or book a recording session. Bellingholm School of Music. Welcome home. This episode is brought to you by Community Strength Painters. For over 20 years, Community Strength Painters has been serving Whatcom County families with impeccable quality, unmatched customer service, and an industry-leading warranty on all interior and exterior jobs. Community Strength Painters is committed to creating value for customers and the world they live in through their Community Betterment Initiative by donating time and materials each year to local nonprofits, including the Whatcom Land Trust, the Chuckanut Center, and as proud volunteers at the Subdued String Band Jamboree. To schedule a free estimate or to submit nominations for charity work, email info at communitystrengthpainters.com. Community Strength Painters, making your home and our community a brighter place to live. The following interview has swear words in it. Welcome to Little City Big Sound. I'm your host, David Penderlofgren. If this is your first time listening to the show, welcome. We're happy you found us. And if you've already listened to an episode or six, thanks for coming back. Either way, don't hesitate to subscribe to our feed on whatever podcast app you're using, or if you're streaming the show from the website, sign up on our email list at the bottom of the page. Doing one of these two things will help you know when we release new episodes and help us know that you're listening. Oh, and if you like what we're doing here, please tell your friends. Maybe help them figure out how to listen to a podcast. It's just a few minutes of your time that will open up a world of incredible stories to them. Stories that will shape their lives, guide their futures, and who knows, maybe they'll be inspired to dust off that old guitar, write a few songs, and end up here on the show. Speaking of incredible stories, I'm really excited to share this episode with you. This month's guest is Bellingham-based MC Mustafa. Mustafa's been a leader in the Bellingham hip-hop community for about a decade now. He was born an Egyptian citizen in Qatar and uh, traveled back and forth between the Persian Gulf and the U.S. throughout his childhood, finally settling in Bellingham just before he started his freshman year of high school. As a rapper, he's continued to travel, logging thousands of miles on tour across the country, and has played shows with an incredible roster of performers. His latest album, Little Bit of Love, or LBOL for short, is by far his most ambitious project to date, and he's just about to embark on a relentless tour playing 35 shows in 35 days up and down the West Coast. I had a blast sitting down with him to talk about his childhood, his career, and if you listen to the end of the episode, you'll get to hear our first in-studio performance, during which the host of this program attempts to beatbox while Mustafa freestyles. All right, here is our conversation. Mustafa, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, you moved around a lot as a kid. Can you lay out like where you lived when, while you were growing up? Yeah, uh, I lived in the Persian Gulf 
for a little while, lived in Egypt for a little while, Oklahoma City for a little while, down in the L.A. area for a little while, Federal Way for a really short while, and Bellingham. So you were living in the, the Persian Gulf, and then, but you bounced back and forth between the states and uh, Qatar, is that right? Yeah, we did. We did that a lot. Um, we were applying for citizenship, so you have to spend a certain amount of time in the country in order to make that happen, so we were kind of going back and forth a lot. So did you, did you guys like have a green card or something? Yeah, we had we had green cards. And then you have to be in the States a certain amount of time to turn that green card into citizenship. It's a waiting period. You were born in Qatar, but you were an Egyptian citizen, is that right? Yeah, I was born in Qatar, but they don't give you citizenship based on birth. So both of my parents are both Egyptian, so I'm still an Egyptian citizen. Do you have memories of um, of living in the Persian Gulf as a kid? Uh, yeah, I was. So I was there from when I was ten till when I was thirteen, as well as when I was like really young, like right after I was born. I don't remember right after I was born, really, but I remember the years from ten to thirteen that I was there. What was that like? It was a great time. Yeah, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It was like they say, like America is the melting pot and all that over there. Like you're kind of getting all the cultures like for real for real like people directly from those places and all of that um and they're like little communities that you go to like the british people had like the gated communities where the outside laws didn't really apply in there and we used to go in there and like have crazy parties with dj spinning and stuff and it was really fun that's in qatar yep where where were you in qatar in doha do you remember what your impression was of the u.s like coming going from that culture in doha like Showing up here, do you remember what it felt like showing up in the United States? It was kind of a culture shock a little bit, but it was also not so much because I knew, like, I knew Americans over there. Mostly the weather change was crazy because it's like Persian Gulf is real tropical. And we moved, the first time we moved to the States, we moved to uh, Oklahoma where it snows and stuff like that. And it was, yeah, big difference. <laughs> How old? Your, your face right now. <laughs> How old were you when... Uh, you moved to Oklahoma, do you remember? Uh, I think around six, maybe, six or seven, real young still. Did you understand what was happening, like why you were moving so much? No, no. No, I was a kid, I didn't understand anything. <laughs> you, like, uh, so, like, you know you're applying for citizenship to a country, all that, like, but you don't know what that means necessarily, you know what I mean? Like, what six-year-old would know, you know? So you spent your, like, some fairly uh, formidable years in Doha, right? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of like the, the big, like, coming of age years that you go through as a child, you know? So it's, that's that's part of the reason why I had so many good memories from over there, just the growing experience and the timing was just, like, perfect, you know? And uh, it was definitely, like, it was the spot where I learned a lot and kind of grew a lot and all of that. I feel like the, I mean, now you live in the United States, the Middle East is in the news a lot. Mm -hmm. Do, does that news like feel different for you having some connection to the Persian Gulf? Definitely. Like there was the whole, uh, like the Arab Spring and the, like there was a revolution over in Egypt where 
I still have here. Like my dad's in Egypt. My whole dad's side of the family's in Egypt. Some of my mom's family's in Egypt. And we still talk to them. So, like, we hear about what's going on there, like, direct from them. And then we see it on the news, too. And anytime you see it on the news, it's like you're always worried about the family and all of that. You know, like, there was that big uprising and all of that. And then there was this military t- stuff going on. I don't know if I can swear. I almost said You can. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah, so it was, yeah, it's real, it's real fucked up to hear about it on the news and see people's reactions over here compared to, like, hearing what's really going on and being worried about family and all of that, you know. It's definitely, it gives you more of a connection to it because family, you know. I actually had a uh, a cousin just recently hit me up and ask if I could sponsor his wife for her to come over here and get citizenship because uh, they, they have to have somebody here already that's family or connected to them in some way that sponsors them. Basically says, I vouch for them, I'll take care of them while they're here, help them, you know, get going and all of that. And I just, because they're like, they're really worried now that Trump is president, especially and all of that. Like people over there are really worried, like they're never going to be able to come here ever again. Type, you know what I mean? Like they're going to miss their chance if they don't do it now. So, uh, and it was just like, I'm not, you have to be in a position to be able to sponsor, like you have to make a certain amount of money, all that. And I just couldn't. And it's going to be hard. Yeah. I mean, I definitely want to be able to help if I can, but it's just things ain't so great over here either. You know, over there, they think everybody over here is doing great, but it's not the case. So, uh, how did you end up in Bellingham? If you, cause you were, you said you were traveling back and forth between, uh, yeah. Doha and the States. Yeah. So we were in, uh. We were in Doha. Uh, my sister had already come over here. She was in Portland. Uh, and we had family down in the L.A. area. So we flew over to L.A. And my mom had it in her head for some reason that she wanted to live in Alaska. So that's where we were going to move to. And then uh, we got a car down in L.A. from the family and drove from L.A. up to Alaska and drove all around Alaska. We were in Alaska, and then I was like, oh, maybe I don't want to live here, like, once she saw it, and we were moving around it. And so we were on our way back to L.A., actually, and we were going to live there. And we stopped at a hotel in Bellingham overnight, and my mom was just like, what about this place? This place seems nice. And I was like, yeah, sure. Like, I just wanted to get out the car at that point. I was like, yeah, let's live here. And we just never left. Wait, so you stopped in Bellingham to... At a hotel because that was just like on the way between Alaska and L.A. Yeah, it was just one of those stops like we had been driving all day. It was nighttime. It was time to stop. So we stopped uh, and we woke up the next day. I was like, what about this place? Let's spend a couple of days here and see what happens. So yeah, just stayed. How old were you when you ended up, when you guys decided to move to Bellingham? I was 13, just about to turn 14. So that's what, like eighth grade or something like that? Ninth grade. Ninth grade. Yeah, I was just going into ninth grade. So when did you start rapping? Were you doing that before you were in, well, before you had gotten citizenship, like when you were still living? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I started rapping a long time ago. I think I, I think I was maybe 10 or something like that, maybe, yeah, around then, when I started writing like my own songs and stuff. 
It was it was bad. I was not good at it. At what all. kind of stuff were you writing about? <laughs> oh, stupid stuff. Like what does a ten year old rap about? <laughs> stupid stuff. I was ten. I was ten. I was trying to be like a. I was trying to, I was just like, at that point when you were a kid, I was just trying to imitate what I was hearing, what I was seeing as far as what other rapper, popular rappers were doing. You know, like I wasn't being myself at all. I had no voice, no, nothing. like I had, I had no idea who I was. I was 10 and I was just like, oh, I heard this. I'm going to try to write like that and try to like, you know, I was just talking about stupid stuff that, that had nothing to do with me. Yeah. What were you... What were you listening to? Like in the past, you've credited your um, your mom and your sister like playing music around the house and stuff, like listening to a bunch of that. Like, yeah. like what were you? What what music was around you? Or what were you listening to that was influencing? Uh, my mom really liked stuff like the Commodores and all of that stuff, you know. Uh, so I got a lot of that, and my uh, sister listened to kind of a little bit of everything. Like she was all over the place. It was my sister's collection of music that first like got me interested in music like she had this little shelf in her room with a bunch of cassette tapes all kinds of stuff and this little boom box on the other shelf and I just I remember I used to look at it and go like man that's really cool like I want that and she would be listening to like all kinds of stuff like everything from like Tupac to Smashing Pumpkins to Nirvana all that and uh yeah, it was all over the place and it was just everything she listened to I just I wanted I wanted to listen to it you know and Eventually, I got my own collection of music, but by then it was CDs, not tapes anymore. I remember I got one tape. It was a double tape of that uh, Tupac album, All Eyes On Me. And it was like uh, you pulled it out and there was all that crazy like fold-out artwork and stuff. I was like, whoa, this is really cool. Yeah, I used to love all that stuff. As your older sister was, was the one that had the music collection first? Yeah, yeah. She had... She had a real big music collection, which, thinking back, maybe it wasn't even as big as I thought it was. I was just a kid and like, whoa, so it was big to me. But, yeah, that's definitely what made me want to start uh, getting more into music in the first place. Were there specific, uh, like, artists or albums that you listened to that you're like, that's the thing I want to try and do? There was, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was definitely more uh, the hip-hop stuff, but there was a... Uh, so there was Tupac, obviously, and all of that. But there was this one tape, Crucial Conflict. I listened to them. Like, they had this song called Smoking on Hay. <laughs> and uh, it was just like the way they were doing it. Like they were going back and forth kind of from rapping to like drawing out, like kind of singing things. And I was like, whoa, this is really cool. Like I like this. And, yeah. So you were writing like long before you started performing, right? You were, you were in your 20s when you started performing. Yeah, I spent a long time writing and rapping and doing all that stuff and just not showing it to anybody at all. Like, I uh, I was almost, like, embarrassed by it a little bit. Like, I didn't want people to know what I was doing at all. Like, I didn't feel like I had anything to show people, you know. And eventually, like, as time went on, I got better at it and better at it, and I started finding myself through it and talking more about, like, the things directly going on in my life. And then, like, that's when I started being like, okay, now I got something to show people. And it's specifically because it related to, like, exactly what was going on in my world at the time. You know, and like, I had friends around where I would be like, oh, if I show them this, like, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And they'll relate to it, and they'll see what it is. And so at that, then I felt like I had, so then I would kind of show them, but still wasn't, like, performing or recording or doing any of that. I was just rapping it to them, you know. What kind of stuff are you talking about? 
just the things that were happening around me and like in our friend group and stuff there was a lot of uh like I had one song called Good Times, for example, and it was like about just like back in high school. I had a friend. He was like the only one with the car and we used to always all want to go to the party and we he would be the only one that could drive. So it'd be like eight of us in the car, maybe. And like sometimes you'd have to ride in the trunk. <laughs> he'd be like laying right next to the sub while they let the system bump, like stuff like that, like just silly, silly stuff. But it was like it was real and it was like. Okay, now, now this is like about us, so now I want to show you, you know. So is that what made you decide you wanted to start performing like in front of people? So when I wanted to start performing in front of people was when I started taking it more seriously. And I was like, this is actually like what I want to do with my life. You know, you got to perform in front of people to do that. I was definitely real nervous. Uh, my first show was terrible. Anybody who was there, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was I was very, very nervous. Uh, I think I forgot most of my words. At one point, I just sat down on the stage. It was just like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, it was real bad. Um, um, I don't know why I even kept doing shows after that. Yeah, what made you want to, like, keep going and say, okay, I, I failed at that one, but I'll... <laughs> I think uh, it's something that, uh, that you just kind of have to do, like, if you... If you really, like, love doing something and you want to do it, then you kind of just have to keep trying. Like, if I stopped, then clearly I didn't even like it that much in the first place. Like, What was the hip-hop community in Bellingham like when you first started performing? Uh, Well, my first show that we just talked about, I had no idea there was any type of hip-hop community. I knew this. Uh, there was a group called uh, Subside which later turned into uh, I-5, and that was the only thing I knew. And then there was also this, like, there was a promoter, a specific promoter that used to do these, like, all-ages, like, shows and battles and hip-hop. So in high school, it was really cool, but in high school, I used to just, like, I wasn't really into it like that. Like, I used to battle kids in the parking lot, and that's about it. Um, and even that was like, what are you doing? Like, oh. <laughs> uh, but it was fun. But then uh, I think when I first did my first show, at that point, I did not know there was a hip-hop scene in Bellingham anymore, at least not outside of the schools. And I was older. I had been outside of school for quite some time. So, yeah, I don't. I had no idea there was a scene. And then uh, by my second show, I ended up connected with uh, the Sunday Cypher, which was... Basically, like, the whole hip-hop scene in Bellingham at the time, I feel like I don't know anything else that was going on. I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that most of the listening audience doesn't know what a cypher is. Can you explain what that is? <laughs> uh, a cypher is when a group of individuals get together um, and you just play some some beats, some music, and you kind of just freestyle, just mess around with stuff, have some fun, and you pass it around. You kind of feed off each other a little bit, and you're kind of just rapping, having fun. So when you're freestyling, like you, like you're inventing the words as they come to you, and trying to make it rhyme, and trying to make it work in like a yep. hip hop context. Yep, off the top of the dome, that's what they call it. <laughs> so, what was the hip hop community like once you finally found the community? It was uh, it was really cool. It was a lot of uh, people that were. I think during the ciphers especially, we were kind of pushing each other to uh, 
to kind of be more like more on point with what you were doing and sharpen up all of that. Um, and it was it was definitely community based. It was like everybody was kind of around each other all the time, supporting each other. Uh, it was really cool to see that there were other people doing the same thing that I was doing uh, with a similar style as well. Like it wasn't like because, you know, everybody like wants to be a gangster rapper at some point in their life. But these were people like being different than that. You know what I mean? So that was really cool. Uh, yeah. Do you feel like the hip hop community has changed since then? Uh, styles have changed a lot. And these days, everybody is very creative. Everybody can rap. <laughs> Everybody's really good at it. Uh, it's definitely, and it's a younger crowd, and they like different things than what we came up on. Like, I feel like a dinosaur sometimes, but uh, it's definitely different. And it's, I think it's progressed a lot. Like, there's a lot more involved in it. Like, there's a lot of outside influences kind of getting blended in and all of that. Do you feel, like, when you sense the style changing, do you feel pressure to change yourself? No. No. I don't. Um, I think that I have spent a long time finding my own style and my own sound, and I think that to try to change that just to fit in with whatever's happening would be silly and not not genuine as it should be with hip hop. So how did you know when you had found your authentic voice? I think that uh, like now, like there's certain songs I can go back and listen to or certain projects I did. And it's like, it's a soundtrack to my life. Like I can be like, oh yeah, I remember that, and you know, and so at that point it was kind of me just being me. Um, and that was definitely a big part of it. And then I also, the way I speak when I rap got a little more uh, confident, but in my own way, like not necessarily like overconfident, but more sure of what I was doing and what I was saying and how I was saying it. And listening to it now, it sounds like, like that's me. It's like if I take it and try to listen to somebody else, I don't think anybody else necessarily says things exactly the same way. Yeah. Do you feel like uh, there are specific things that you know, like this is part of my sound, like I do this thing, I use this tool, and this is part of what, Mustafa sounds like uh I I'm not sure I don't I don't think I look at it necessarily in that way like I uh I tend to like there's lots of different ways I write songs and it just depends on like what's happening at that time in my life and where my head's at all of that but uh so sometimes I'll write a song one way where like I just came up with this one line and I was like, oh, that's like, that's really cool. Like I was maybe just in the moment dealing with something and that one line crossed my mind. And I was like, oh, that describes it perfectly. That's cool. Like, and I take that and I just kind of build the rest of the song around it. And that like, that's almost like putting together a puzzle kind of. You got to treat it like putting together a puzzle with words. And then other times I just like will sit down and listen to a certain instrumental or something like that, or I'll hear a song on the radio that like makes my head start wheels turning, you know, and I'll just start writing, starts finish, and just write like that. 
Is there a difference between like you, like you say, like you, you have that, that element that you think, okay, that's a good piece. Mm-hmm. And then you're putting together the puzzle and you're trying a bunch of different stuff and some things work and some things don't. Mm-hmm. And then the other situation is something sparks your creativity and you just sit down and like write it out mm-hmm. and it's all there sort of preformed almost. Mm-hmm. Is there, uh, do those different approaches or do the, the songs that come out of those approaches feel different to you? Uh, they do. I think, uh, the songs that were like, I come up with the one line and then kind of build, put together like a whole puzzle with words is kind of more, uh, on the like technical side of rhyming. Um, and then the ones where I just write it out, like start to finish like that is more on the like emotional side of it. And then there's a mix between both as well. Like when I do the technical side, it's still like based on like an emotion that I had because I'm building it around that. But uh, I think when I do it like that, because I'm sitting down and thinking more, maybe I'm overthinking it even, but I start like uh, thinking about, ah, oh, but it would sound cool like with this, like this, and you know, rather than just writing out just, yeah. Can you talk about the way that the themes that you write about have changed as you've developed your writing style? Uh, I think they've definitely matured. Uh, just because I've matured, like, as a person in general. Uh, what does maturation look like? Like, what do, what do you mean? Uh, like, I got some hair on my chin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's like back when I was younger, for example, like, I did used to write a lot about, uh, like, real issues and, like, hardships and stuff like that. But it was more, like, focused on just, like, me and my particular circle of friends and as I got older I kind of started seeing more and learning about more and uh writing about more just through that more more uh topics that like that affect all of us that are relatable to everybody but I think that uh as I got older my problems turned into grown people problems instead of kid problems so I started talking about grown people problems instead of kid stuff okay I'm going to quote you from a 2014 What's Up Magazine article. Oh, oh boy. Uh, So in this article in May of 2014, you say, quote, I enjoy making music because it teaches me a lot about myself. The writing process involves a lot of self-reflection and really focusing on your good qualities as well as your flaws. If I saw a loved one going through a hard time, I make them a song to help them through and let them know that I cared. So it sounds like what you're saying there is like not only is writing a way for you to process emotional things that you're going through, but it's also a way for you to sort of like reach out to other people. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm a very uh, shy and quiet individual in general, and I also am not necessarily the greatest at expressing feelings. And and I've definitely, uh, the music has definitely helped me to like – reach out to people I love and let them know that I do love them and I care and all of that. Like, it's just, it's kind of turned into the way I communicate my emotions almost. Like, like I'm almost incapable of communicating them properly without, like, turning it into a song, which is a very bad thing, but it is what it is. A lot of MCs um, adopt stage names. Mm Mm-hmm. How did you choose Mustafa? 
Uh, Mustafa is just my last name. So wh- why just use your name rather than adopt a, a different name? I'm bad at uh, making up names and stuff. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not the most creative person. Like uh, People say I'm creative because of the songs. It's about, um, that's not necessarily being creative to me. That's just me talking about things. You know what I mean? Like talking about things that... I wouldn't normally have the conversation about like just in general with like in person like it's a way to get across that side of me uh so that's not necessarily being creative i'm not creative at all i couldn't think of a name you know everybody has their like alter personas and names and like really like it's just me so like why make up a fake name anyway right so it's just you but it's also i mean like like you said you're in real life you're a pretty shy person uh-huh but this is like your gregarious jump around the stage self. But it's still me. <laughs> it's just, uh, I don't know why. Like it's, Which is crazy because I went from that first show real nervous and not comfortable at all up there to like now it's almost like the only place I do feel comfortable, feel like I can 100% just be myself, say whatever comes to my mind and not worry about it. You know what I mean? Not be held back at all. This episode is brought to you by Robert Sayers and Blake and the Dublin Letters, celebrating St. Patrick's Day at Boundary Bay Brewery on Sunday, March 17th, with their annual concert, A Long Series of Memorable Songs Forgotten. As the longest-standing St. Paddy's party in town, Robert Sayers and Blake and the Dublin Letters perform traditional Irish ballads as learned from the playing of the Dubliners, the Clancy Brothers, and the Pogues. This is no stuffy theater performance, this is a pub show. Beginning at 7 p.m., this celebration of Celtic culture is complete with stomping, singing, audience participation, audience interruptions, blunders, extrapolations, and inspired, exuberant extemporization. In the words of the band themselves, if we set the bar too high, we won't be able to stand on it. Sunday, March 17th from 7 to 10 p.m. in the Boundary Bay Brewery Taproom, Robert, Sayers, and Blake in the Dublin Letters. St. Patrick's Day, the Bellingham Way. A lot of the time you uh, perform like just with a DJ on stage, so it's you and a, a DJ. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a while you were performing with a live band. How different is it rapping in front of a live band uh, compared to p- performing with a DJ? Like, does that make it more difficult for you to figure out where you are? Or uh, I think I think it helped actually. I think. I think the big difference for me was the crowd it was attracting wasn't necessarily a crowd that liked or appreciated hip-hop as much. Like, when you have a live band, people will just be like, oh, it's a live band. I like live music, you know, and they're not. uh." But it was was definitely, uh, like, people had a great time at the shows. It was really fun. I think as far as as me personally performing, it definitely made it a lot easier for me to not— feel like I had to always be like doing something, interacting with people. Like I could kind of fall back if I wanted to. So that was cool. That was great. What do you mean it was harder to have people who were just there to see a live band? Uh, the live show is one thing, but of course, as an artist, you're always looking to make that lasting effect on people. Like if people are just coming out to drink, party, and just enjoy a night of live music, that's great, but that's not... I would like I would rather have a lasting effect on somebody and have them like really connect to the music than have like a room full of drunk people just 
not really paying attention, just being like, oh, this is fun, you know? Wait, so when you're on stage, you're not only thinking about like, am I putting on a good show, but also how do I turn this audience into long-term fans? I'm not necessarily thinking about it like that. I'm more thinking how do I connect directly with this whole group of people right here? Like, how do I make this connection, you know? Are there techniques that you use when it's just you and a DJ to try and do that? Uh, I mean, after touring a lot, I definitely learned how to liven up the show to, like, you trying to win over a crowd of people that don't know you and you're not even from their city. They're there to see their hometown hero, you know. It's definitely hard. Uh, I toured a lot with Landon Wordswell, who is amazing at that as far as the live show goes. And that taught me a lot. And I definitely had to step my game up touring with him and touring with Gift of Gab and touring with all of those people. Uh, so I think there's definitely certain techniques I use to make them actually pay attention, you know. But uh, I tend to talk to people a lot, too, like just on the microphone, like I'll talk to random people like, hey, how you doing? Like, you know, like in between songs or something. Uh, so what what do you do? Like, what do you see Landon or someone doing that you go, okay, I'm going to try that thing. Like, I don't uh, know, jump around the stage. Or like, what, what, are you, what are you doing to actually be like, okay, th- this is going to get people to interact or this is going to engage people? Uh, I remember the first time I saw Landon Wordswell live, he was just, so energetic, like jumping around all over the place. Like there was a pool table in this in the in the dive bar we were at. It was called Tubs back then, which later turned into the Swillery, which then turned into Bosco's, which now is nothing <laughs> at right. that spot. There was a pool table right there. I remember the owner had specifically told him, "Don't jump on the pool table." And first thing he did was jump up on the pool table and start jumping around and just going crazy. And the owner was looking at him for a second, and he's like, you know what, I can't even be mad. This is amazing. And just, he just kept, and he just had this crazy presence and energy, and he was, like, looking at you in your eyes while he was, like, all over the place. Like, and, and I was like, damn, like, that definitely caught me and made me be like, okay, like, I need to look more into this dude and see what's happening, you know. So uh, I think it was more just the overall influence of what he was doing that kind of, like, it made me realize, like, okay, the, I have to separate the live show from the studio recording because like, it's supposed to be two completely different things. And I hadn't even like thought about that or realized that up until that. You know what I mean? So, you, I mean, you have done a ton of touring. Like you've been the dude showing up in the town where no one knows who you are and, you mm-hmm. know, they're there for their, their buddy. Mm-hmm. You said before that you're a pretty shy guy. Um, what did you have to do to get comfortable being on a stage uh, I just had to keep doing it I think uh I got I got really comfortable on stage it was my third show I believe and I I think at that point what happened was I had uh my producer at the time sea legs was there and was on the stage with me and I think that was the first time I had somebody on stage with me that I like really knew. Like that was a part of what I was creating. It was like right there with me. He had created some of the stuff that we were showing people. So he had every reason to be just as nervous as me. And he was up there with me. And I could like look back at him and see he was there, had my back, all of that. And that's when I started feeling more comfortable. And also there was actually a big crowd there that time. That helped a lot. <laughs> And then from there, I think just 
repetitively being up on a stage in front of people, no matter what amount of people it was, and doing that. Like, it's always hard to, because, uh, like, with, with, like I said before, with the music, it's like I'm expressing a side of myself that I normally keep reserved. And so it's definitely, like, I think that was what made me uncomfortable in the first place was letting that side of me out, being like, hey, like, this is, here's here's how I really think about this. Or, you know, like, it's always going to make you nervous because at that point people aren't necessarily judging your art or your craft. They're judging you specifically as a person, you know what I mean? And it's like, well, what if they don't like me? You know what I mean? Like, that's a big deal. So it's one thing to, like, jump on stage and be gregarious in that space. But if you're on tour, you also have to, like, promote yourself and talk to the club manager and go to the merch table and sell your record. And, like, oftentimes you're staying in someone's house. Like, how do you how do you navigate those situations? I don't know. I definitely have had people probably think that I'm an asshole and think that I'm not, like, and, and it's not, that's never the case. Like, but they just saw me on the stage, you know, comfortable doing whatever, so they have no, like, they don't think, like, oh, he's probably just shy. They think, oh, he's just standoffish and being an asshole because he thinks he's, like, a star or something, which is never the case. I'm just really shy. Uh, and I've definitely, like, navigating those situations has always been, like, the other person has been, like, over eager to reach out and be like, hey, that was, like, they, they really liked the show and they really wanted to help us out or they really wanted to hang out and they kind of pushed it and... Like, didn't necessarily just go, oh, he's being quiet. He's an asshole and walk away. You know, they, like, stuck around and wanted to hang out. And they were like, yeah, come back to my place, you know. So that's how. I don't navigate it. I just, you know, it just happens. So your your most recent album, uh, I believe, is A Little Bit of Love, right? LBOL? Yep. Is there a theme to that? Like, LBOL, that tune is, like, super positive and super, well... I don't know. It feels to me like it's a very uh, strangely uplifting thing, and you're being very honest about like we all need mm-hmm. we all need to feel love, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's the overall theme to the project. It definitely touches on like uh, things happening around the world, or like or certain personal struggles people might be going through. I think the idea is that uh, reach out and a little bit of love could really help you through it and, and that we should all kind of be like it's kind of like the uh the domino effect you know what I mean like if if one person is kind to somebody then that person is in a good mood and it's kind to somebody else and rather than uh, opposite the other way around you know what I mean does that album feel like a departure for you or like a, a shift in um in theme or something from previous records not necessarily a shift in theme uh, I think it, it's more of a grown album compared to other albums. More thought out, more, uh, I put more into it just in general. I did like the whole, like when I, when I was a kid, talking about my sister's music collection, I used to love like opening up the art and looking through the books. I got like a bunch of art for the booklet of the CD, which Miss Mandible did. She's a local artist. She's really cool. Uh, and I turned it into this whole, like, this whole thing, like, start to finish, like, even, like, down to the physical packaging of it, which I've never done before. Yeah, the art is incredible. It's, like, it starts out as, like, a human heart with, like, stitches and bandage. Like, it's really beat up looking. Yeah, and it yeah. grows from that into a tree. Yeah. That was really cool to see all come together. Like, I just expressed an idea to an artist, and she just 
did amazing with it. Yeah. I like that um, because with that album, you the booklet has all the lyrics in it. Mm-hmm. And certainly um, for someone who's not like, uh, my ear definitely isn't trained to listen to super fast moving hip hop lyrics. Mm-hmm. I love being able to sit down and listen to the record and look at the lyrics and be like, yeah. I can get every sentiment of what you're saying. I used to love that too when I was younger, just reading along with the songs and learning the words. Is it important for you to know that your audience is like really getting the message of what you're saying? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't, I don't make the beats. I work with some amazing producers. So really my only part in the whole project is the message and the words. So it's definitely important to me that people are picking up on that too. Otherwise, what am I doing? Is that something, like, are you intentional about um, trying to make that stuff clear to your audience? Like make, make your, your lyrics clear and make your, make your message like. Yeah, I am. That's actually uh, one of the compliments I've gotten from being on the road is that people have said like, you know, like this, these other, like I couldn't understand what they were saying. It was just fun, but I could hear every word you were saying. You know, and, uh, it's very helpful in connecting with people as well. So I definitely try to work hard on that and make sure that people can understand what it is I'm saying. Hand movements help a lot when you're talking. <laughs> so you made a tour poster with 35 stops on it mm-hmm. from Bellingham to San Diego and back. Mm-hmm. Can you talk me through your process of booking a tour that is that big? I mean, that's like... Basically what happens is I put up the poster with the nail booking thing just to uh, get a little help because like, people will start reaching out to me. From there, basically I start talking to about eight different people and emailing about anywhere from 10 to 20 different venues for each city on the stop. Wait, that's eight people, 20 venues for each for one of those each 35 cities. Yeah, it's very hard to keep track of. I get very confused about what's going on sometimes. I use like Google spreadsheets to try to keep track of it. But eventually, when you're talking to that many people, eventually something usually works out for each city. Uh, somebody comes through, something happens. So yeah, and I have a lot of previous contacts from touring a lot before that I usually go directly to first. But on this specific tour, the goal was to take no days off at all. Uh, Why? Just because it's always better on the road. Like as an independent artist, anytime you have a day off and you're spending money, like it's a bad idea, always. You always want to have something to do, stay busy, keep money coming in. But then uh, that makes it really hard because even like my go-to like contacts that are basically family at this point, some of them will be like, and it's a Sunday. I can't do that. Like, there's, like, nothing I could do for you. Or M- Monday? No, nah, I can't do a Monday. So, which you can't give everybody a Friday, Saturday. Do you end up with, like, weird gigs if that's the way you're booking? Like, you're playing a coffee house on a Monday or something? Yeah, we do. We definitely do sometimes. Uh, and I actually like the weird gigs, like coffee houses and stuff like that. Because as, uh, as somebody that is creating the message, trying to get the message and the words across, people at a coffee house will probably pay more attention than people drunk person at a bar you know or yeah but the shows with drunk people at bars are real fun do you change the show based on whether it's like a bunch of people sipping coffee or a bunch of people yep. drinking alcohol yeah definitely you gotta adapt oh. to what's happening what what changes like what what's the difference uh it's definitely more of a uh low-key like, like i'm not 
if I'm at a coffee house, I'm not like jumping up on tables and doing all kinds of stuff like that. If I'm at a bar, I am. Can you talk me through like what your day-to-day process looks like when you're in the middle of booking this stuff? Like you say, you're just sending out a bunch of emails. Wake up around 5 p.m. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll get on, uh, look at my phone. There will be messages from some places, emails from some places. I'll respond accordingly uh, from there. I'll look at my notes. I just keep like a note on my phone or like, a checklist of what I need to follow up on at this point because most of it's already done. Um, and then I will take a break and go do something. And then I'll get back to the house, stay up all night, just sending out emails, which is the best way to do it because on weekdays, uh, you got to think like bookers and promoters usually like keep business hours. So like if I'm up all night and I'm just drafting these emails and then I just send them out before I go to bed at like 8 a.m., then they're getting into those people's inboxes at just the right time. So it's going to be like at the top of their list when they're checking their email and you don't get buried behind all the other emails they're getting. So the secret is to stay up until 8 a.m. and send the emails then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, don't tell nobody. (laughs) How many times have you gone on tour? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) It's been quite a few times. Uh, Yeah, a lot. There was one point where I was... Touring three months, home one month, touring three months, home one month, touring three months, home. And that was about two years of that, I think. So you went from like being the shy kid, writing lyrics, not trying them with anyone, getting stage fright at your first show. And now, 10 years later, like you've toured countless times through dozens of cities, shared the stage with like some really well known MCs, uh, released close to 10 albums. Mm hmm. I never thought about it. It's crazy, huh? Yeah, how does it feel to have come so far? It feels amazing. It feels good. It feels like, uh, you know, because when you're a kid, like especially sharing the stage with certain people, when you were a kid, you were listening to them just like, oh, they're incredible, you know, and then, and then you're right there on stage with them, you're hanging out backstage with them, just like talking to them, stuff like that. Like, it's crazy. It's amazing. Uh, definitely have accomplished a lot of what I set out to accomplish and feels good. It's still a lot more that I want to accomplish. And that is, uh, it's a very heavy load sometimes it feels like. It's a lot of, a lot of stuff to think about all the time. It's hard to keep my head like here with people around me sometimes. What are you what are you aiming for? Like what are, what are the things you want to accomplish? Man, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know, it's a lot, but, uh, one one of the big things was I always like what like back in the day when I was a kid I used to watch like people like uh like I used to watch videos of like rappers I liked or something doing like festivals or shows or something and it'd just be like this crowd full of people just screaming the words along with the MC I've always wanted that uh, and that yeah like to connect with people like to that extent where like a big crowd of people you've never even met just are yelling your words at you like that would i think that would be an amazing feeling like, it'd be like a, a high you'd never come down off of or something you know so that's that's what i'm trying for next let's see what happens <laughs> that's why the lyrics are in the booklet read them <laughs> <laughs> uh you toured with gift of gab from black Alicious, right i did yeah how did you connect with him 
uh, that was through my brother Landon Wordswell, who I connected with. So when I started touring, uh, I was touring solo, just by myself. Landon Wordswell, MC from St. Louis, had just moved to the Northwest and was doing the same thing in the region. And we were both doing the same thing. We ended up connecting at some point, and uh, then we both just kind of liked each other. Really, I mean, we're both doing the same thing. Let's just do it together, make it easier, like combine our our connections and our fan bases and all. I was like, yeah, that makes sense, and so we did that. Uh, and from there, Landon like is an amazing artist, amazing MC. He had a show with Gift of Gab at one point. Uh, so Gab was just sitting like back in an area while Landon was rapping. And Landon went up to Gab's show, was just like, hey, it's amazing. So he was like, y'all know, like, Gab liked him. He was like, you're dope. And it, he ended up connecting with Gab. And then through that, he just kind of took me along with him because we had already connected. And we were already doing that. So that's how. Yeah. And that was that was great. That was an amazing time. It was quite a, um, quite a, quite a change in pace as far as the touring went all of a sudden. What do you mean? Uh, well, we started working with a whole different network of people than we were working with, started making different connections, uh, just getting in front of bigger crowds in general, just automatically, just because there was already a crowd there to see Gab. Did that feel like all of a sudden you had reached a new plateau? Like, do you feel like you had sort of made it to some degree when you started touring with him? I didn't, no. It didn't necessarily feel like that. It just, at the time specifically, I mean, looking back on it, it definitely bumped us up. A little bit, but at the time, it didn't really feel like anything. It just felt like we were still doing what we were doing. You know what I mean? Like it didn't feel like much of a change. The tour schedule changed quite a bit. It's pretty well known that Gifford Gab has been struggling with kidney failure as mm -hmm. a result of type one diabetes. Mm -hmm. Did that, like, did that impact you guys on the road? Is that something you definitely? Did? It was a. Uh, it, it did, so like touring got a little better. Kind of with Gab, just as far as getting in front of bigger crowds and uh, connecting with more people and all of that. But it also got a little harder because we would like we would have a show in this city. We'd get out of the show at 2 a.m. and Gab would have to be at dialysis in this city at like 5 a.m. So we would have to like leave the show and just take off, uh, drive all night, get him there. We'd sleep in the car for a little bit. Then we would go. Uh, to a hotel or something after he was done and sleep and then go to the show in that city. Uh, so the schedule got uh, a little rougher as far as sleep and stuff like that on the road, but you never get that much sleep on the road anyway. But So, yeah, so it kind of got, uh, like, touring kind of got better and it got harder at the same time. Were you traveling with him? Like, were you guys all in the same vehicle? Yeah. Yeah, we were all in the same car. Did he impart some good wisdom or Anything to you guys? Oh yeah, I got I got like a bunch of like I was just sitting in the back seat sometimes, and he was just talking and talking and talking. I got a bunch of like videos of him like just trying to drop knowledge on us and stuff like that. Um, which he told me to never show anybody, so I will not. But I have them, and uh, it was cool to listen to a like an OG, a veteran of the hip hop world, talking to us just. All that and like there was one time like he he's just got like other legends that we all grew up listening to and love just on his phone like calling him sometimes and he's just in the car talking to him on the phone we're just like holy shit like it was pretty cool. Can you imagine being that guy down the road that like has a couple of young bucks in the back seat trying to uh -huh. take notes as fast as possible? Uh -huh. <laughs> that would be 
that would be quite a thing. I think it would be a bad idea for anybody listening to any advice I have to give, though. I'll say that now. You work at the Shakedown, right? I do. Yeah. What's, what's that like? It's great. I love that place. Um, it's a music venue that is run by musicians, owned by musicians, you know what I mean? So they understand the whole music thing. I actually ended up getting the job because I had I had to take a break from touring for a minute, which was my main source of income at the time. So being that I had to take a break and sit at home, I had to find a job. And I got that job um, through, I worked at CAPS. I still work at CAPS as well, uh, another great place. But I was working the door at CAPS and the shakedown needed somebody for door. And CAPS had told them that I was great. So then I walked in and I already had a relationship kind of with the shakedown staff because I had done shows there. And I walked in and Tasha, the bar manager, was just like, oh, it's you? I didn't know it was you. If it's you, yeah, you can have the job. I was like, oh, cool, thanks. And so I started working there. Been working there for a very long time now. And reason being is that um, they do, like, being that it's full of musicians there, they understand a musician's lifestyle. They're fully supportive, very helpful. They're like, oh, you need to go tour for a while. That's fine. Like, uh, you can, like I can go tour now and come back home and still have a job, which is a great and amazing feeling to have that kind of balance because before that, it was like a choice, either have a job at home or be able to tour. So it was just like, okay, I'm going to tour because that's what I'm trying to do with my life, but then I have to tour like nonstop, so I'm never home, and now I get to be home. So that's amazing. And the whole staff there is really cool. You've been there. You know. You know it's great. You just interviewed Holly last time. You know. <laughs> so... uh What's next for Mustafa? Like, what's you got? You got this big tour planned. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, I plan on I'm gonna start working on another new project soon because it has been about a year since I released LBOL. Uh, I tend to release a project about once a year usually, so I'm gonna try to do that. Um, and I'm going to definitely start focusing on touring more as well. Now, with this LBOL project, I definitely feel like I've grown a lot, uh, and I put a lot more into the project, like I said, so it's definitely like I want to really get the physical out into people's hands. So I do plan on touring extensively throughout the U.S. and possibly trying to hit overseas um, and just really push this project and get it out there as I'm working on this next one, kind of slowly behind the scenes while I tour is the plan. Thank you so much for coming in here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Before we go, can you, uh, what do they say, spit some lines? Spit some lines. Yeah, you got to beat. <laughs> <laughs> check, check. Yo. Uh. Uh. <clears throat> no, I'm on the spot. Oh, you feel you feeling nervous now? Am I red? <laughs> <laughs> you put me on the spot first, man. Okay, ready? You got that? Hey. 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 
Let them know they got a problem. I ain't part of that postopedic pajama rap. Catch him sleeping and I'ma smack all the teeth out his noggin cast. It's trying to find me. Probably be where them dollars stack. Where the art is at. Strap aiming at all the crest with automatics. They follow fascists. Walk with the heart of cashes. Sling with my partners. We talking tactics. They trying to trap his time is a factor. The mind is magic. Deep in the rap and still don't believe. Go ahead and ask, bitch. Wait. Chilling at the crib with nothing to eat. And Shorty says she love me for the words that I speak. Put something on it. Where the fun's at? We been out here starving, steady, suffocating lungs, black. Uh, okay. Hey, keep going. You got it? You running out of breath? Hey, okay. Hey, hey, okay. Hey, hey. Got the dudes paid. Struggles almost made a brother lose faith. Moves made. Travel with the tunes, but the blues chase. It's still the same crew making new tapes. Same dude. Rock with a smile full of toothaches. Hey, and the pockets still flat. Spill what they feel. Don't move stop and kill tracks. Look, I take a loss and build back. Off that work, caught a little buzz. Call it six pack. <laughs> but it's still a long way to go. And I came to grow aiming at your soul. With that basement flow On a road known to take its toll Never play the road Break the mold till I make it home yeah. It's been a long time coming Grind on the mind with that unsigned bumping Come find me, come find the front lines dumping Citrus shoes, homie, dropping jewels on percussion Hey, good job, man <laughs> That was great I didn't think you were going to be able to go that long Thanks so much, man I appreciate it <laughs> Thank you Thanks for having me All right, that's a wrap. Get it? I know, I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. Uh, Seriously, though, many thanks to Mustafa for sharing his world with us. If you want to hear more of his music or follow along with him on his touring adventures, you can find him at followmustafa.com or on Instagram at followmustafa. That's M-O-S-T-A-F-A, Mustafa. Before I sign off, I want to let you know about a new development at the offices of Little City Big Sound. We now have a Patreon page. If you're unfamiliar with Patreon, it's an organization that helps support artists and their craft by allowing you, the listener, to become a sustaining contributor to this program. All you have to do is go to our website, littlecitybigsound.com, click on the Support the Show page, and then hit Become a Patron. From here, you can choose any amount and sign up to have that amount automatically donated on a monthly basis. And when I say any amount, I really mean it. At the risk of sounding like NPR, the continued support of our listeners will allow this program to grow and flourish. We'd love to be able to produce these shows more frequently to bring you more stories from the incredible musicians and industry insiders that make our music community what it is. And on the subject of folks who do their part to fill our ears with remarkable local music, I am thrilled to announce that our guest next month is someone who I've been wanting to get into the studio since this program began. Carrie Ross is the music and film editor at the Cascadia Weekly and was a contributor to What's Up magazine in the early aughts. As such, she's had her finger on the pulse of Bellingham music for 18 years. I can't wait to talk with Carrie about her career, what it's been like to cover music in Whatcom County and beyond over the past two decades, and to finally get an answer to the question, why does the photo next to your byline always have a turkey's head where yours should be? This episode's interview was recorded by Andy Rick at Binary Studios. Thanks, Bob. Our ad music is courtesy of Mystery Chi. Thanks, Joel. Our theme music was written and performed by Andy Rick, and our logo was designed by Andy Rick. Thanks for everything, Andy. 
Little City Big Sound is a proud member of the BellPod Network, a collective of independent podcasts made right here in the city of subdued excitement. We'll leave you with a track off of Mustafa's latest album, LBOL, called I Need Your Love. been a long, long road, yeah. and it's a beautiful feeling, I hit the canvas with panoramic parameters, capture the planet, peace to the phantom menace to stand with us, break the box and I'm challenging how they branded us, got a smile on my face, it ain't for the cameras, look, put the passion of palace to class with callous, the last of the pilots, had to menace after the stratus, it's the anthem, I'm back with the balance, for the react, where I'm at it take more than casting a ballot. Been a challenge to balance since I parted ways with all my darker days. Then was past the marches off the page. Guess it seems I got a lot to say until I finally walk away. I'ma be the man that mama raised. See, I ain't saving my breath. And you can hate it or love it, but either way we connect. Give me some, it's a long road to look down. Maybe we've been pushed down and stomped on, but baby, this is our song. And it goes. This is what it's all about, look at what we're made of Might have tried to knock us down, bet they couldn't break us Ain't no one to save us Peace to all my people that been steady pushing back It's time to face what you afraid of It's for my brothers, tell them to stay up Keep their head up and all that It's about where you from and where you fall at How we travel down this troublesome road Came so far, still a long way to go Yo, look what we up against, crooked governments Trying to divide, we gotta fight until we finally become us again Try to shut me out, I'm busting in Just to let you know, you ain't in it alone, we all suffering, look, and I ain't saving my breath, you can hate it or love it, but either way we connect, hey, been a long road to look down, maybe we been pushed down and stomped on, but baby, this is our song, and it goes... A little bit of love? Well, to me, I guess that's waking up in the morning every day with a positive attitude and trying to spread the love. That's a little bit of love for me. So whether it's a kind word to somebody that needs it or taking three minutes out of your day to hear a song that somebody put their heart into, it's all love. And a little bit goes a long way. L-B-O-L, little bit of love, to me, means taking the time out of your day to do something nice for someone else, um, doing something to make them smile because it's selfless. It's not for you, it's for them. Yo, what up, Mustafa? It's Tajai. So, uh, L-B-O-L, you know, sometimes that can change someone's day. You never know. A little text message, phone call. Hey, how you doing? How was your day? You know, it could change someone's whole perception of their day. A little bit of love can go a long way. LBOL, a little bit of love. To me, that has a powerful message behind it. Knowing that something 
that might not mean a whole lot to you could mean the world's difference to someone else, whether it's a helping hand or a simple notion of I love you or care about you. A little bit of love can really go a long way. LDOL means sharing what you have. A little bit of love is that small amount of effort that makes a big difference. It could be like going out on a limb for somebody or lending them trust, not expecting anything in return. Or it could be just acknowledging someone, giving them like a head nod as you pass, let them know they exist and you see them. L O L B O L spells love. Your love.